Watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. Gathering Memories of the Moon Landing by Joanna K. Zavallis. Fifty years ago, on July the 20th, anyone old enough to remember most likely knows exactly what they were doing the moment man took his first steps on the moon. Eight Belmont residents shared their memories of that moment in 1969 for a special edition of the Belmont Story Project, a podcast collaboration between the Belmont Public Library Belmont Media Center, and Wicked Local Belmont. Belmont reference librarian Nancy McEnemy McComb conducted most of the interviews with Jack Ananian, Kim Archer, Dr. Eva Brecher, David Ching, Dr. Kwan Kwai Lei, Bill Magson, Catherine Robinson, and Stephen Shatikovsky. Each shared their personal memories and experiences of the historic day. Many of them recall stopping whatever they were doing to watch the landing on television or listen to it on the radio. They are also residents who did work, there was also a resident who did work directly related to the early space program, like Brecher. She shares her memories of being a NASA principal investigator and having the opportunity to experiment on moon rocks brought back from the Apollo missions. I don't have any personal memories of this momentous event, so talking to our participants really brought it to life for me, said McEnemy McComb. One of her favorite discoveries while doing the interviews was Dr. Kwan Kwai Lei, who was living on a small Malaysian island and was surprised to hear the news after the fact that man had landed on the moon. She did not know such a thing was even in the works, said McEnemy McComb. She, she thinks listening to these stories will give people a perspective not found in history books. I hope that those who were not around for this event will find that these stories bring the 1969 lunar landing to life in a way that reading about this history doesn't quite do. I hope that those who will, be, who will be around will be inspired to reminisce with their friends and family," said McEnemy McComb. And now on to my colleague Claire. Thank you, Bob. Starbucks in Cushing Square is now open by Joanna K. Zavellis. Starbucks in Cushing Square was once a popular place for coffee or tea lovers to meet up with friends or work remotely before it was torn down for the Bradford development a little more than two years ago. On the morning of July 12th, passers-by who saw the now-open sign began dribbling in and appeared to be pleased with the fresh new space in the newly constructed building called the Winslow. According to Starbucks Cushing Square shift manager Alex Calderon, 
The new space is larger and it's a lot more high-tech than the prior one, with exclusive new espresso machines that make blonde, regular, and decaf espresso. There are several tables in brown leather cushions, lounge chairs, and couches in the various sizes throughout. Hours will be 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., seven days a week. It will have 42 indoor seats and 12 outdoor seats and parking in an adjacent lot for 20 cars. An outdoor seating area located in the back of the building is still under construction. And now over to Max. Thank you, Claire. A Project Long in the Making by Joanna K. Suvelis. 19 years. That's how long Anne-Marie Mahoney, chairman of the DPW Belmont Police Building Committee, said the project for a new police station has been in the works. The facility, located at 460 Concord Ave, built in 1931, will soon be getting a new life as work on an addition and renovation begins next month. To celebrate the beginning of the project, a groundbreaking ceremony was held early in the morning on July 9th. Chief Richard McLaughlin, retiring the end of this year, expressed his gratitude. Since he was hired in 2007, he has wanted to see the town reinvest in the facility to bring it up to speed with the times and technology. It's something that is very needed for the department and the community, and I truly believe once it is all done and completed, it's going to be a project we can all be very proud of, he said. When completed, the existing building will be renovated and have a 10,000 square foot addition. The police department in Belmont has endured this building more than they ever should have, said architect Ted Galante. He said the, so the solution will save Belmont $30 million. Our intention is to build forward, save the town money, and give the police what they need for the next 50 years, he said. According to Mahoney, the total estimated cost of the project is $10.6 million, which includes the winning construction bid from GVW contracting of $7.6 million, 500000 for the rented trailers for the police staff to work in during the construction, and $1,147,550 for the architectural designs and owner's project manager. Community preservation funds are paying for $808,575 of the project for renovations to the historic Georgian-style exterior of the building. Select Board Chairman Tom Caputo said it was a very challenging project. We had historical constraints, budget constraints, time constraints, specific needs associated with the police department in this area, and yet everyone came together to figure out a way to deliver a great design and a great building, said Caputo. Later this month, the emergency dispatch department will be temporarily moving into a tr rented trailer parked in front of the Belmont Police Station on Concord Ave until the construction on the interior of the building is completed. Also later this month, the rest of the department will begin working temporarily in rented trailers parked at the Water Department on Woodland Street. Mahoney expects the project will be completed in the next year and hopes to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony next summer. The historic Belmont Police Station will be getting a three-story addition, adding 50 years of life to the building. Starting from the ground up, the addition will add storage space, equal male and female locker, shower, and restroom facilities, a three-bay garage, sally port, office space, gun lockup, interview and booking space, new prison cells for males and females, a public meeting room, roll call room, new staircase, handicap accessible elevator, handicap entrance, parking, and sprinkler system. The existing interior of the building will also be renovated 
which will include upgrading the HVAC, fire safety, wiring, plumbing, eliminating hazardous materials, and refreshing the wolf floors, walls, ceilings, and doors. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Water World by Heather Smith. As sea levels rise, people with expertise in keeping water at bay are going to become very popular. Many of them will likely be Dutch. The Netherlands has been constructing flood barriers for centuries and added a massive network of dams and levees after a 1953 flood killed 1,835 people. 26% of, this, of that country is below sea level. <laughs> School children are taught how to swim with their clothes and shoes on to prepare them for floods. Hundred, hundreds of years of trial and error, plus a nationwide acknowledgement that climate change is very real thing, have put the Dutch ahead of the curve when it comes to planning for encroaching waters. Here are a few of their innovations. The water square. Imagine a standard European plaza where people meet to chat, drink coffee, read the paper, play chess, all your classic plaza activities. Now imagine it nestled snugly in a giant concrete soup bowl. Water square Benthemplen in Rotterdam was built with floodable amenities like stone benches. When rains come, gutters set them into the sidewalks, carry water away from nearby buildings and into the plaza, turning it into a temporary reservoir. Salt-tolerant crops. Dutch farmland is already experiencing salt water intrusion, and as seas rise, more salt water will seep into coastal farmland around the world. Some farmers are switching to crops like samphire, a now trendy sea vegetable once known as the poor man's asparagus. On Texel Island, scientists and farmers are breeding crops that can grow in salty conditions with relatively low loss of yield. Their greatest success so far is a potato four times more salt tolerant than standard varieties. One customer for this technology is Pakistan, which is planting test plots where the rising Arabian Sea is changing the ecology of the Indus River Delta. The sand engine. The Dutch were dredging sand off the Delftland coast every five years to replenish beaches that were protecting the area from storm surges. Then a professor at Delft University of Technology thought why not use dredged sand to create a giant sandbar in a location that would let wind and waves gradually redistribute the sand along the shoreline. The coastline could be protected for 20 years and less frequent dredging might mean less harm to local wildlife. Seven years in, sandbars are, the, are, are in the works along the Netherlands coast and in the United Kingdom. Letting the water in. Hundreds of years worth of flood infrastructure in the Netherlands held back the water, but also dried out the peatlands near the coast, causing them to compress and sink below sea level. In the 1990s, the government began re re removing and lowering dikes, a process known as depoldering, and relocating farmers to higher ground so the land around them could safely flood again. 
the Netherlands still has no shortage of high-tech flood barriers. But this approach is a reminder that sometimes adaptation means retreat. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Looking at flight traffic noise, looking for a way to reduce concentration of airplanes flying over Belmont by Joanna K. Zuvelis. There is a glimmer of hope for residents frustrated by the noise and vibrations from airplanes flying over their homes. In June 2013, the Federal Aviation Administration changed flight paths of planes taking off from runway 33L at Logan Airport to what's called RNAV patterns. These new patterns narrowed the number of flight paths to three narrow routes causing airplanes to fly directly over Belmont and neighboring communities, including Watertown and Darlington, more often. Since September 2013, Belmont resident Myron Casaraba has been Belmont's representative on the Logan Community Advisory Committee, CAC, and its successor, the Massport CAC. He also helped organize the Municipal Working Group, MWG, a group of advisory uh, committee representatives, municipal officials, and legislators representing Arlington, Belmont, Cambridge, Medford, Somerville, and Watertown, making an effort to communicate as one voice. The negative impact the changes in 2013 is having on the noise in their communities. The MWG has enlisted the support of legislators Representative Catherine Clark and sent letters requesting relief from the FAA and Massport. In January 2015, a request was made by the affected communities at the Logan CAC asking for the reevaluation of the 33L RNAV procedure. In October 2016, MIT began an RNAV study to, among other related issues at Logan, evaluate options to disperse flight paths from the 33L runway, similar to what it was prior to the change. At a briefing for the 33L MWG on June 24, Dr. John Hansman of MIT's Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics presented several options. He and his our NAV study team have formulated for runway 33L to disperse the flight paths. Casaraba said it would be challenging to go back to flight patterns that are more equitable because communities who haven't had airplanes flying over them for the past six years will not like having them again. Equity, or what is fair, is a complicated issue, said Casaraba. Each option would change flight patterns and move them to some neighborhoods that have a higher population density, like certain parts of Cambridge and Somerville. He also said it would be challenging because the volume of the flights has gone up. Logan now has flights taking off until midnight or 1 a.m. and starting as early as 4.30 a.m. According to Casaraba, more information will be needed before any additional progress can be made. He is working on getting this information and hopes to have a public meeting in September. Now, over to Max. Thank you, Claire. <clears throat> Finding ways to reduce use of plastic. 
an editorial by State Representative Dave Rogers. As many of us know, our everyday use of plastics is damaging our environment at an alarming rate. Plastic waste contributes significantly to pollution in Massachusetts. The more plastic we use, the more we continue to pollute our land and oceans. Scientific research has estimated that in the ocean, plastic bags can take 20 years to decompose, and plastic bottles can take up to approximately 450 years to break down. Here in New England, the effect is visible as tons of plastic is washed up on our shorelines every year. Not only does it pollute our water and land, but the air we breathe as well. Our wildlife has also suffered drastically. An estimated 100,000 marine animals die from plastic entanglement per year. We must begin the process of adopting new practices now. And yet there is some evidence that fossil fuel companies, realizing that there will be a slow but steady shift away from oil and gas in the coming years, view the manufacturing of plastics derived from oil as a central part of their future business plans. With this in mind, I have made the issue of finding ways to reduce the use of plastic and styrofoam one of my critical areas of focus this legislative session. Working with the Conservation Law Foundation and other advocacy groups, I have introduced several pieces of legislation that are designed to minimize or eliminate some of these harmful products from use. Set forth below is a discussion of just some of those bills. Modeled on a California law, I filed an act restricting distribution of single-use plastic straws. This bill would prevent restaurants and other food establishments from providing straws to customers unless specifically requested. Workers in California reported that although it takes some time to adjust serving non-plastic straws or foregoing them altogether, has now become a second nature. However, the bill still does allow for straws to be provided by request for any reason, as small children and people with disabilities do sometimes need them. From my own experience, I am continually surprised at how many establishments, without asking the customer, automatically provide a plastic straw for drink orders. And then I am equally surprised at how often the customer merely takes the plastic straw out of the drink and drops it on the table. That is a commonplace occurrence every day at thousands of establishments. It is incredibly wasteful, costs these restaurants and other businesses an unnecessary expense, and is terrible for our environment. In addition to the bill pertaining to plastic straws, I also filed a bill relating to how we recycle plastic bottles, an act to improve plastic bottles and their recycling plastic pollution must be addressed on many fronts, and our ban on plastic straws would only put a dent in the broader issue of how we combat plastic waste. Our use of plastic bottles has caused significant harm to our environment. More than 80% of bottle caps found along shorelines come from consumer drinks, and the rest comes from things like detergent and pill bottles. In fact, among the most frequently found items discovered during beach cleanings, bottle caps are high on the list. Two things must happen if we would like to see an improvement in this area. First, we must ensure that caps stay connected to the bottle so they cannot be disposed of separately or accidentally littered. Second, we must ensure that the caps and the bottle are made from the same type of plastic so they can be recycled together. Today, even if someone were to recycle a bottle with the cap attached, because bottle and cap are often made from different materials, it can prevent the whole bottle from being recycled. The bill I filed addresses both issues. It mandates that a bottle be designed in a way that the cap stays attached and that it is made from the same type of plastic as the rest of the bottle. 
It has the potential to make a significant improvement in how we recycle plastic and cut down on plastic waste. Outside of the environmental impact, our use of harmful materials in our everyday lives has also created a public health issue. Specifically, one of the most widely used plastics is polystyrene, also known as styrofoam. While many of us know that petroleum-based product causes significant harm to the environment, less well-known is that the toxic chemicals released from the styrofoam can also leach into our food. Recently, I testified on behalf of my bill, an act to prohibit the use of polystyrene foam food connectors, which was, on, which was referred to the Committee on Public Health. This bill will ban stores and food distribu distributors from selling or packing foam in polystyrene foam, styrofoam, in Massachusetts. There are now good, affordable alternatives. We simply do not need to keep using styrofoam. I am pushing this bill hard and hope Massachusetts will join only a couple of other states, Maine and Maryland most recently, who have banned this harmful and unnecessary product. Enough plastic is thrown away each year to circle the earth four times. This is a significant concern and has fueled the zero waste initiatives aimed at reducing, reusing, and recycling effectively. In Massachusetts, 9.2 million tons of waste comes from residential and commercial properties. Only 32% of that is recycled. We must enforce current regulations that ban certain types of waste from landfills and incinerators. That would help us reduce our disposal rate by nearly 35%. That is why I also filed an act to incentivize the reduction of residential waste disposal, pay as you throw. This bill requires municipalities to report their waste disposal numbers per capita for all residential service every year, and if they are disposing of more than 500 pounds per capita, they are required to adopt a Zero Waste International Alliance, ZWIA, compliant program to reduce or divert waste from disposal. In Massachusetts, it is encouraging to see that some companies are beginning to transition to other materials. Starbucks, Hyatt, Hilton, and Bon Appetit are among the few that have not only banned plastic straws, but have come up with several alternatives. Many companies now sell reusable metal straws, which come in a multitude of forms, such as aluminum, titanium, or stainless steel, and are considered the eco-friendliest due to their longevity. Other companies have implemented recyclable lids and some have used biodegradable paper straws. <coughs> the cafeteria for the state house and other state employees has started putting out paper straws. In addition to my legislative initi initiatives, I am hoping that market forces and consumer pressure will help keep up the slowly growing momentum for alternatives to plastic. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Reach dancers to perform in Cambridge. 14 teen apprentices, three college interns, and four professional dancers of Boston University's Reach dance program will present their annual public dance performance at 7 to 8 p.m. on July the, 24, July the 24th, Municipal Lot 5 at 84 Bishop Allen Drive in Cambridge. This outdoor dance performance will feature original choreography with a range of styles including hip-hop, ballet, contemporary, and Afro dance. All will be invited on stage at the end to learn a dance combination. 
A rain date is set for the same time on July the 31st. This performance is free to attend. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Residents to perform in Legally Blonde. Belmont residents Sophie and Olivia Knickerbocker will perform in the Western Drama Workshop summer production of Legally Blonde at Regis College, 235 Wellesley Street, Weston. Western Drama Workshop, a youth theater organization in its 57th season, will stage five productions in July at Regis College, featuring participants between the ages of 10 and 23. With over 25 performances in the span of three weeks, Western Drama Workshop continues its long-standing tradition of providing the Metro West community and beyond with quality youth theater. WDW's Younger Ensemble will perform Dennis Kelly's and Tim Minchin's Matilda. Directed by Aidan O'Hara, this show features a cast of 60 young actors between the ages of 10 and 14. A smaller subset of this age group will also perform Disney's Finding Nemo Jr., a one-act musical based on the movie with a score by Tony and Grammy award-winning songwriting team Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. Nemo is directed by Katie Brobst and Callie Llewellyn and is a pilot production, meaning that WDW is the first to produce this version of the whimsical undersea tale. The program's older ensemble, ages 14 to 23, will perform two main stage musicals and one black box play, Spring Awakening, The Wolves, and Legally Blonde. Now, over to Max. Thanks, Claire. The Council on Aging. The Belmont of Council on Aging is located at 266 Beach Street. Ongoing programs. Social resources. Do you have a smartphone? Are you interested in getting a smartphone? Not sure where to begin? Sarah, our social work intern, is here to help. Currently offering meeting times to talk about smartphone service options, qualifying for the Lifeline Federal Program, strictly a low-income or public assistance qualification, and how to use Uber and Lyft, you can schedule a meeting with her from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Mondays and Fridays. For information, call 857-342-2411 and leave a voicemail with your name and number. Back to you, Bob. Along with my colleagues, Claire and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We will return next on August the 13th for another edition of Local News Happenings around Belmont.